Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Economists, I mean... I don't know. I, we're told we have to talk to them. Um, so we so we bring this guy, Stuart Paul, in there. He's a new guy. Uh, I didn't hire him, but he's at uh, Bloomberg Economics. He's an economist here, and we love talking to him. Um, I mean, he's, and, not, he's not a new, new guy. He has a lot of experience oh, on yeah, the street. Yeah. Oh, he's been around forever. Yeah, he's a research fellow at the FDIC. But who gets a PhD in economics? I mean, talk about it. Work for Teal. I know. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, Stuart, you're in our studio, man. You get like a double star on a Friday in studio. That is he's solid always in the effort, office. man. You guys have, you and, and your team have a great um, uh, story out or note out. Consumers lived beyond their means through third quarter. And then that's Matt Miller. I mean, right. as he's looking right. at his Dodge Challenger parked in a garage. Um, and coveting that. Talk, what are the numbers behind that? Are, are we just, have we exhausted all our savings and now we're just kind of borrowing and that's how the big spending number comes out today? Well, so the savings picture is a little bit complicated, but the headline numbers make it pretty clear that consumers were living beyond their means. And it was mostly due to discretionary services spending in the, in the yep. third quarter and that continued through September. And so when we're looking really in real space, which is what matters most, we see real disposable income declining for four straight months and gangbuster spending throughout the quarter, including on on discretionary items. So the real question ends up being, what's the Fed going to do next? Fortunately, within the report, there's one little bit of a silver lining on the inflation side. And it's that inflate, there was actually deflation for some of the most important durable goods, some of the things that are going to be most front of mind for those of us who lived through June of 21, for example, and were really focused on auto prices. Auto prices declining in the PCE report, uh, furniture prices declining, the catch-all, other durables prices declining. And so we see monetary policy getting some traction, and they're just going to need to continue leaning against the consumers who have been spending down right. that savings pile. Now, can they continue leaning uh, against consumers? Can, can monetary policy get more aggressive uh, even without them doing anything? That's kind of the narrative that the Fed has been giving us, right? This uh, passive tightening thing that Bostic talks about. Right. So the passive tightening would be that uh, you see economic activity slowing in the background while nominal policy rates stay steady, all while the Fed is continuing to soak up liquidity by running down its balance sheet. That is possible. It I suppose is. it's not it's not doing nothing if they continue QT, essentially. Yeah. I mean, they still call QT passive. It really depends right. how much there is in active sales to max out their caps of $95 billion a month. Uh, but they consider it to be a, one of the more passive elements of their monetary policy. Um, and as they continue to soak up liquidity, as banks continue to see uh, the effects of higher rates resulting in deposits leaving and the cost of credit becoming higher for consumers, it is the sort of thing that ends up resulting in slowing spending going forward. Now, consumers living beyond their means, isn't that what Americans do in general? Yes. What's, what's <laughs> yeah, the, what's exactly. The I mean, have we just yeah. gotten back to normal? Because when I put, um, yeah. you know, Torsten Slock's list of worries up to any of the bowls and I yeah. say, you know, uh, savings have been completely drawn down. Um, uh, everything's going on a credit card these days. Delinquencies are picking up. Yep. The bowls always say, so what? That's right. how it was in 2019. This right. is how we do. Well, so here's what's not the same as in 2019. Savings rates are extraordinarily low, and we've been- Even with the higher interest rates? 
Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So extraordinary. 3.4% in September. 3.4% uh, savings as a percentage of disposable personal income. So proud income. of your daughter, Paul. I am too. And, every time. And that's while disposable personal income growth is negative, right? So think about what that means in savings space. I know that people like to, especially the bulls, like to look at this idea of cumulative excess savings as, but that, as a source of additional spending power going forward. But that is not uh, dry powder that's sitting in banks. That cumulative excess savings as it's calculated is really just foregone spending in previous months. And that money could have been put into Bitcoin or into yeah. whatever at $60,000. And it's gone, right? And we know that it's gone if we look at bank balances for the average person in the bottom 50% of the income distribution and adjusted for inflation. There is no excess cash balances for those folks. I got to ask about, first about you, Mish. Sure. Um, one year out, uh, their survey just coming across the, the ticker, um, participants expecting inflation of 4.2%. Mm -hmm. It's more than we thought they were going to say and more than double what the Fed wants it to be. Is that a concern? So year ahead inflation expectations don't matter as much as longer term inflation expectations. So we should be looking at the five year or what? So we should be looking Why at five year. It seems like I, have, I don't even know what I'm gonna do tomorrow, much less a year, much less five yeah, years. Yeah, because, because year ahead is so responsive to gasoline prices. Ah, that, that's really mm, why it's answer, like a pretty simple answer. correlation that, there. That so, makes sense. Yeah, that so, tracks. So that we tracks. do, we do uh, wanna look at the five year inflation. Five to 10 year, we're looking at 3% uh, on the survey that just crossed. That's right, so that's for the median. The yep. thing that most people are going to overlook that I don't want you guys to overlook is that the average inflation expectations five year out jumped pretty dramatically up to 4.7% uh, from I think 3.2% the prior month. Yep. Right. So like that is something notable that the Fed is going to keep an eye on. Um, we still think that the Fed is going to remain on pause through the October 31, November 1 meeting. Uh, there's still another opportunity to hike at the end of the year. Uh, but when you see uh, durables prices coming off as we did in the most recent report, we see consumer sentiment moderating a little bit uh, month over month, and we see real disposable income declining for four straight months, and households clearly getting a little bit stretched, then the Fed can be a bit patient. I just got uh, one last question for an economist, sure. um, which you are, and you have experience working with government economists as well. Economists are always on the one hand, on the other hand, right? And when you look at the surge in yields that we've seen in these markets, on the one hand, you could say, well, that's because of strong growth in the U.S. economy. On the other hand, you could say it's because of massive deficits that we have. Right. Janet Yellen yesterday said the surge in longer term bond yields in recent months is a reflection of strong growth in the U.S. economy, yeah. not the jump in government borrowing driven by a widening fiscal deficit. Now, yeah. she would say that, right? <laughs> talking her book. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean. Is she just talking the book, her book? Totally. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it, 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 any economist would acknowledge it because if we take it back to Econ 101, we're thinking about incentives and constraints, right? What's the Treasury Secretary's incentive here? It's to downplay the effect of running deficits that are pretty massive and being on an unsustainable fiscal trajectory for the next 30 years at least, right, over the entire forecast window. You look at what the Fed thinks, and it is going to be more so a matter of unsustainable fiscal uh, fiscal policy. That's what I thought. This guy's good. Yeah. He's good. You can come back get in time, dude. Uh, Stuart Paul, he's a U.S. economist for Bloomberg Economics, uh, kind of breaking it down for us here. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before, like access to the trade desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. 
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Take a look at ExxonMobil. The stock is down uh, about one two. 0.2% on earnings. Now, it missed earnings estimates in the third quarter. It did boost its dividend and a huge, huge increase in cash flow. So we want to get more details here with Darren Woods, ExxonMobil chairman and CEO. Darren, we really appreciate you joining us on this very busy earnings day. Um, I just want to start a little nerdy, uh, and that's with the chemical side of the business. That's really what led to some of the weakness in earnings. Chemicals is a really wonderful indicator as to the global economy. What should be our takeaway from that weakness for you guys? Well, I think there's two things to look at in our chemical business. One, obviously, is demand and the link to GDP. But the other is the supply. And we typically see that commodity cycles in chemical are driven by generally growing demand, but then then peaks of, of supply coming on. And that's certainly been the case that post the pandemic, a lot of supply has come on. We haven't seen excessive growth in GDP. And so you're seeing that pressure manifest itself in very low margins. Mm-hmm. But that's a supply issue. Demand hasn't been as strong as in the past, but we're still continuing to see rising demand just at a much slower rate uh, than historical. My expectation is GDP begins to pick up and China continues to kind of come out of its uh, post-lockdown issues that we'll see uh, growth in, in, in chemicals pick up. But we're still going to have to work through the supply overhang. Okay, so that's a more of a supply issue than a demand issue. That's good to know. Um, to that point, if we just go to the broader oil story, because in some ways, let's get through earnings, but really the story for you guys is the Pioneer deal uh, and the takeover there. And some of the numbers that you guys were tossing out here are huge, like increasing approvable reserve to $1 billion in the Permian. Some analysts are worried that you can't get that far. What are you guys going to do that gets you there? What we're going to do is what we're already demonstrated we're capable of doing. So if you go back in time, Alex, you know, we set out a strategy to make sure that we were applying the full weight and force and capabilities of our company into the unconventional space. And that's been a concerted effort to develop technologies to improve recovery. We've been implementing that in the acreage that we've got today in both the Delaware and the Midland. We're seeing very good results. We've demonstrated the ability of those technologies, the techniques and the development processes that we have in place. And what we're doing now is taking that proven capability and applying it to the best acreage in the Midland. And so uh, Pioneer is basically in the fairway of of, uh, acreage in the Midland. And so we've got this very very um, uh, good acreage that we're now going to apply these the capabilities that we have in Exxon. So that's the combination. They are demonstrated capabilities that, that we have built into those synergy numbers. It doesn't comprehend the additional uh, technology that we're working on today that's in the pipeline that, frankly, we think has promise. So our view is while the numbers are big and it reflects the capabilities that we bring from ExxonMobil, and marry up with the, the acreage and the capabilities that Pioneer has, uh, we've got additional upside coming down the pipe. Wow. Darren, good morning. It's Guy. Um, morning, you Guy. Are, to, to your point, and, and you're just talking about what is happening here, but I think it goes and speaks to beyond that and what else you're doing. You are proving to be very good at execution, project <laughs> execution. You, you're demonstrating that. You've got a new refinery coming on. You are proving to be very good at that. Others in the energy space are not particularly within the renewable space, where it is proving to be very difficult to execute well right now. Can you just talk to me about how big an advantage that execution story is and how you can leverage leverage that to do more? No, I think you've hit on a really important point, Guy, and you're absolutely right. It is critical, particularly in a capital-intensive industry like ours, to be very good at executing large, complicated projects. In 2019, we consolidated all of our resources on projects into one global organization. That organization has the sole focus of making sure that we are developing world-class industry-leading projects and then executing them uh, ahead of schedule and ahead of budget. And we're demonstrating that. That applies itself to our low-carbon solutions business today. And so if you look at the challenges of going from carbon capture or biofuels at scale or hydrogen at scale, marrying that with requirements of uh, storing and sequestering CO2, 
we're, we are in the sweet spot of pulling all those things together and doing it at scale, which is going to be required to address the challenges out there with respect to the size of the emissions that we have to reduce. There aren't any other players out there that have that same no, uh, yeah. capability. And that gives you a huge advantage. Now, you've just done the Pioneer deal. Alex was talking about that. Does that execution ability, though, now give you the opportunity to look at what's happening in the renewables space where there is a tough time emerging and start to cherry pick assets there as well and use your ability to execute to turn those assets around? I would tell you we're going to leverage not just our project capability, but our technology capability. And the way I've characterized it, we're a molecule company. Uh, not an electron company. And so we bring more value in the space required to manage and, and transform molecules, hydrogen and carbon molecules. Mm -hmm. That applies to CO2. And so what, what we're going to apply our, our uh, capabilities to is the molecule side of the equation, which is carbon capture and storage, hydrogen, biofuels, capturing the emissions associated with, with existing uh, harder to carbonize industries mm -hmm. that don't have any real practical alternatives and applying that. So we see huge opportunities there. In fact, our local carbon solutions business is, is turning those opportunities into high return projects today. Yeah, I know. And I know that Dan Ammon has talked about the fact that he won't do it unless he gets those high returns uh, for low carbon solutions. Darren, would that include buying a refiner, buying more refining asset, or refining assets? Like if you got to move the stuff, if you got to move the molecules and make different things out of it, you need different refining capacity. So I, you know, we when we look at our refining uh, circuit, we're looking for what I'd say is a diversified uh, set of capabilities and advantages. So if you look at what we've been doing in refinery, we've been concentrating our refinery footprint and focusing on the strategic refineries that are producing high-value products in the lubricant space, the chemical space, the f uh, fuel space, the traditional fuel space, but also the opportunity to use our technology to then bring in biofuels and biofeeds to make uh, lower emissions fuels. So we feel really good about the footprint we have today. You can't just go out and buy that from a refinery. It really comes from years of integrated uh, approach to investing and making sure you've got a refinery that is producing a portfolio of products that meets society needs. Darren, none of this happens in a vacuum. You must be watching very carefully what is happening in the Middle East. I assume you are. Is there, to what extent do you think there is the possibility of a repeat of the 1970s, another oil shock coming? Or do you think the supply base is now diversified enough to avoid that? And I'm also hearing conversations Regarding the possibility of, of a super cycle re-emerging, do you see any eventuality that could lead to that at this point? How would you, how would you address these two issues? Well, I would, I would start with the latter. And, and again, I, the industry is still recovering from the impact of the pandemic and uh, the lower levels of capital that have been going in across of the industry to, to offset the depletion that's been happening. And so supplies are fairly tight. So the big issue is, you know, where's demand at? If you see uh, real growth and growth in demand, then that's going to challenge the supply base that we have, which will put more pressure on prices and margins. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really a function of where does the global economies go in the years ahead? Because for the next couple of years, it's going to, it's going to take time to get uh, additional capacity coming on. Darren, With respect to the yeah. Middle East. Yeah. No, go ahead. Finish. With, res with respect to the Middle East, what I'd say, it is still an important region in the world. Uh, and while to date, um, the tragic events are not uh, manifesting themselves in an impact, you know, that's something we're keeping a very close eye on. Darren, do you see the global economy entering a recession, soft landing? Do you see any of that on the horizon? I think if you if you step back and look, the U.S. I think is in reasonably good shape. I think China continues a very slow emergence from some of the challenges it's had in the past. Uh, I think Europe is probably the most challenged region as I look around the world. And obviously, they've been disadvantaged with the lack of energy security and some of the challenges they've had with the loss of, of uh, affordable natural gas. And so I think that's going to continue to weigh on the European economies. Mm -hmm. And then I think feel relatively uh, comfortable with what we're seeing in the other parts of the world. And we'll see. We build the business to handle any economic uh, situation. Mm -hmm. We certainly go through these cycles. And so we, we make sure that we're robust to the down cycle. Uh, Darren, you kind of led me perfectly there because I wanted to ask about uh, LNG, in particular, uh, Guyana. You have a new partner there, and at Chevron, you guys are not unlike working with each other. You guys do this all the time. Have you talked to Mike recently? What kind of development can you guys come together and really drive technology to get more stuff out of the ground there? 
Well, I think if you look at what we've been doing in Guyana, we've got a really good track record there. You know, we're the operator there. We're, we we run the projects. We're, we're developing those projects. We've demonstrated over the last several years the ability to bring in these large, complicated projects at uh, world-class schedules, uh, world-class costs. We're beating our budgets. We're beating our schedules. And then once we get them online, we're running them at levels higher than what the investment basis was. So a very successful uh, development process. We've got three boats, the third boat coming on uh, here in November and three more in the pipeline. So I think we've got a pretty good suite of technologies and capital uh, projects that our organization is developing. Uh, we've worked with Hess in the past. Of course, we're working, we work with Chevron all around the world. I see them, uh, their participation basically, basically coming in and supporting the work that we've already demonstrated our ability to deliver on. Darren, this is an industry that feels like it's back on the front foot that you are optimistic, that you can see deals getting done. The industry is doing deals. We've seen two massive ones over the last few days. Yours uh, obviously included within that. A, do you think that's true? Which then takes me to a kind of bigger picture story. This industry has been pushed back hard over the last 10 years, let's call it, by the ESG movement. Do you think that ESG movement is now over? I hope not. I don't think, you know, ESG from our standpoint, this is not an either or proposition. This is an and equation where you've got to do both. You've got to develop the resources and the energy supplies that the world critically needs to support economic growth and support people's standards of living. And we've got to do things to reduce the emissions. We're working on both of those things. And so I don't see those competing against one another. In fact, to my point before, we're working on a set of solutions that are complementary and, and leverage the same skills and capacity. So we've always leaned into the need to produce low cost, uh, low emissions energy sources and do that in our traditional businesses. We have continued to invest in that space and we're continuing to work opportunities to grow value in that space. At the same time, we're leaning into the, the energy transition and using those capabilities to help not only reduce emissions in our own operations, but we're helping third parties, mm -hmm. particularly hard to decarbonize industries, lower their emissions. We've got three uh, large world scale contracts with uh, a fertilizer um, uh, manufacturer, an industrial gas mm -hmm. manufacturer and steel manufacturer to cap capture their emissions. Those three contracts in yep. themselves is the equivalent of putting 2 million electric vehicles on the road. That's the number of electric vehicles that are currently on the road in the U.S. So think about that. Yeah. Three deals with carbon capture and storage equate to the same level of uh, electric vehicles that are currently on the market. Hey, Darren, we know you got to run. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you taking the time with us today. It was great to get through that. Next time, we're going to talk about four-mile laterals and new technology. Uh, Darren Woods, ExxonMobil Chairman and CEO. All right, that was uh, Bloomberg's Alex Steele and Guy Johnson uh, interviewing uh, Exxon ch uh, Chairman and CEO Darren Woods there. Uh, the company reported some numbers uh, last night, as did Chevron. So we're hearing from some of the big energy companies. Still with us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, Fernando Valle. He covers all the energy space for Bloomberg Intelligence. So, Fernando, just stepping back, I was listening to what the, Mr. Woods was saying. What's kind of the investment call out in the street for Exxon today? Well, I think there are two points. First, as Guy was trying to ask if they're ever going to do renewable power, they're not. I mean, I think that was pretty clear. <laughs> He's going to continue investing in oil, and he sees an opportunity to seize market share from other players who have stepped back, namely the European players. And he's done that by buying probably the premier asset in the world in Pioneer and then going out and deploying some of his technologies. Uh, there's still some questions in my mind as to whether those technologies will actually have the impact, he, he says, but he, uh, there's no question that he bought the best asset available. Um, I think as long as we believe that oil will have 20 to 30 years, he's done a, a tremendous job in retooling Exxon's portfolio. All of their main assets now have been acquired since he became CEO. And as he said, Guyana is the next best one. And it's a tremendous asset, as uh, you saw with Chevron buying Hess, just to get into that. So just a uh, quick question on that. As long as we believe oil will have 20 or 30 years, are there people who think we won't use oil in 30 years or 50 years? Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Not that, that we won't use it, but that we'll peak in, by 2030, the International Energy Agency just put out their oil outlook saying as much this week. That will peak, that what, uh, oil, will the peak oil in terms of pulling it out of the ground will be 2030? Demand. Demand, uh, demand. Views I see. will okay. be 2030. Does and, the industry believe that? Well, 
Uh, certainly it doesn't seem like Darren or Mike Worth from Chevron believe that. Otherwise, they wouldn't have bought 25-plus year assets on that. Right. I think Fatih B-Roll tends to exaggerate in that direction, right? I mean, he also... Well, whatever. We can move But if, if we... If we go talk to BP or Total or any of the European ones, we're going to get a different story than we heard from Chevron or Exxon. Uh, not so much from Total. Okay. Uh, Total, Patrick Pouyanné has been very open that he thinks, uh, similar to, to, to uh, what Darren Wood said, it's an all of the above. I think when you look at just energy demand and how much emerging markets still don't consume, it's the more energy you offer, the more you'll be consumed. So it's an all of the above, not just an if end sort of solution interesting i'm gonna I, I don't know i think it's I, we've heard peak oil so many times before dude i started hearing peak oil when i was a little kid <laughs> and i'm almost 50 but that's because i Whoa. grew up i grew up with charlie maxwell Who's and charlie maxwell? he was the first person to really call peak oil and he okay. was very wrong you know and certainly in terms of timing as long as matt's driving we won't hit peak, peak yeah oil. that's a great yeah. point there driving the uh Dodge Challenger Scat Pack, whatever that thing is, uh, that burns uh, fuel like you wouldn't believe. But it sounds good and it looks good. Fernando Valle, thanks so much for joining us. He's senior analyst covering the global energy space for Bloomberg Intelligence. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Obviously, we are right smack in the middle of earnings, and we had some good numbers out of Amazon, offsetting some of the perhaps weaker than expected numbers we got from some of the other tech names earlier this week. So lots of crosswinds for uh, this market to digest. That's why we check in with some pros who do this for a living. Nadia Lavelle joins us. She's a senior U.S. equity strategist uh, within the global wealth management business at UBS. So Nadia, again, I was just kind of suggesting a lot of crosswinds, seems like there always is, uh, for investors to kind of navigate here. You put it all together, you look at kind of what we're hearing from corporate America and their earnings, as well as the economic data, as well as the geopolitical uh, data. What do you? What's kind of the message you're going out to for the UBS clients? You know, our message is that we still remain constructive on the market. I mean, we had expected earnings to sort of be the stabilizer um, in the face of higher bond yields. And it's been a tough earnings season so far, not because companies are missing expectations. They're actually beating expectations, but the stock market response has been more muted and even negative. Um, and those that have had weaker outlook on guidance have actually been punished in this market environment. And so what that is telling us is that the bar is high. And of course, those higher bond yields are also challenging relative attractiveness 
of the equity market. But we do think that the market is hitting some key technical levels. You're now seeing the S&P 500 trade under that 200-day moving average and flirting with correction territory. So we think when we get into the back half of the earnings season that hopefully that would act like a stabilizer and companies will continue to beat. Uh, we do think that the outlook for earnings has improved just given the strength of the economy. And so essentially we are buyers on this weakness. Ah, nice. So, I mean, as we think about these markets here, I mean, I guess, are you at the point where you think we're at peak rates here and that the next move, whenever it does come, will be lower? Or are you still have some, some Federal Reserve risk in, in your outlook? You know, next week, we'll see what the Fed messaging is. We do think that the Fed is done hiking. I mean, I think it's widely expected at this point that um, the Fed will remain on hold next week. We did hear some of that being echoed by several of the speakers ahead of the blackout period. Some might say that November is a skip, but we think that the hiking cycle ended back in July. I mean, we all know that financial conditions have tightened quite a bit and the longer the curve have have moved up and it's doing exactly what the Fed had hoped to do. To, so that transition mechanism of tighter monetary policy is happening. And as we heard Chairman Powell say last week, there could be even more in the pipeline, just given the fact that the Fed has raised interest rate so quickly over the last year. So we think that the hiking cycle is done uh, in terms of the outlook for sort of the 10-year uh, Treasury note and the yield on that reality is bond market volatility remains so high. So it's difficult to know if we've seen a peak on the long end of the curve. We could see it test 5% again, but we do think that once the Fed is done hiking and that's clear and economic growth slows, we expect that the 10-year to come back towards 3.5% by the time we get to mid-next year. Wow. So you think, uh, I guess, investors, certainly domestic investors are buying these bonds, um, but it doesn't look like there's any demand internationally, even at 5%. What, what pushes us back down? Do we get our deficits and uh, debt under control as a, as a, as a country or um, just the slowdown in the economy? It's more the slowdown of the economy. Uh, we do think we do know that there's a bit of a term premium that's being built in on the long end of the curve, just given the concerns around the deficit. So what we really think is going to drive bond yields lower is going to be a slower economy, inflation abated. I mean, you saw today in terms of PCE, yes, headline did surprise a little bit to the upside, but more importantly, core PCE continues to moderate. I mean, you have year over year core PCE at 3.7%. That's right in line where the Fed had expected it to be at the end of the year. And so we are ahead of trend. And we think that that core PC is going to come down even by another 25 basis points by the time we get to the end of the year. And so that's partly why we think the Fed is done hiking. And that should help to sort of stabilize bond yields and push them low. And we are looking for a period of subtrend economic growth. We don't think that the momentum that we see in the third quarter is going to continue at the same pace. And so we think that GDP would come in under 2% by the time we get to the year end and into next year. And that's why help bring down bond yields blue button thank you very much today's a big energy day uh for in investors nadia we had chevron and, and exxon mobile uh report their numbers we heard at bloomberg television we just uh, heard from uh the darren exxon woods. chairman and ceo darren woods mm -hmm. what's your call at ubs for energy um still some room to go there for energy investing we think so. And we do like it on this pullback. And, and it has a lot to do with our core view on the outlook for oil. I mean, we all know that global inventories continue to see drawdown. And they're on multi-year low, just given the continued stance by OPEC plus to constrain supply. And we think that that's going to continue into next year. And demand remains quite robust. And then, of course, you know, we have the ongoing conflict and the war in the Middle East that could put some upward pressure to oil prices. And so we think that Brent oil is going to get back above 90 and probably hover around $95 into next year. And that should be supportive to the energy sector. You're seeing some weaknesses today, just given the earnings in terms of uh, concerns around refining more margins. And that's why we continue to prefer DMPs and some of the oil services companies within the sector. If we get into a recession, um, which stocks take the biggest hit? Do you think, because uh, last time we got worried about um, this market, it was interesting to see investors look to big growthy tech companies as almost safe havens you know i think in terms of like traditionally what gets hits in a recessionary environment it's the most cyclical areas of the market you know financials have been a lot under a lot of pressure the banks have provision 
for an interest uh, a recessionary environment, but you could see an additional letdown as there will be increased concerns around credit and defaults um, on credit and delinquency picking up. And so you probably see those areas, more cyclical areas of the market get hit. In terms of sort of the quality growth names, particularly in tech, remember these companies have very strong balance sheet, they're self-funded, and so we would expect them to be able to weather um, the storm a little bit better. There are parts of tech that are quite defensive, including software where recurring revenues are there, and also parts of tech like cybersecurity that we think um, are more defensive play than sort of the cyclical semiconductors of tech. And Nadia, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate uh, getting some of your time. Nadia Lavelle, she is the senior U.S. equity strategist for global wealth management over there at UBS. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney, live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio, streaming live on YouTube. I don't know what to do with this market. No idea. Yields are higher. Can stocks work? Um, you know, Tom's in his triple leverage all cash fund. He's sleeping like a baby. But what, what do the rest of us do? Maybe our next guest can help us out here. Alex Chaloff, co-head of investment strategies at Bernstein Private Wealth Management. Uh, he's based in Los Angeles, where we got him live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio today. So that's good. Alex, what are you telling people? If I come up to you at a, at a cocktail party tonight and I say, what's your market call? What, what, do, you, what do you got for me? T-bill and chill. T-bill and chill. See, that's yeah. Matt Miller's been calling that. Yeah, I like the ETF. How do, you, how do you go about it? Well, I think there's a number of different ways. I mean, anything on the short end is going to pay you. You're not taking any risk. And you have the flex to do something different. If we get some, I don't know if we will, but if we get some real dovish language from Chair Powell next week, then all of a sudden it's off to the races and it's go time. So I think you want to have liquidity. You want to have an ability to flex and do something. Um, but I don't think it's binary. I don't think it's cash or something else. I think it's a mixture. And I, um, we're hopeful that Powell gives us a signal that it's okay to step a little bit out but on the risk does, spectrum. Does dovish language from Powell next week, does that just take the Fed out of the equation for the foreseeable future because they're not going to do anything on rates? They're still going to be doing QT, but they're not going to up it. Uh, is that what you want? Yeah, I don't. I mean, dovish language is like Nirvana. He's not yeah. saying it, right? He's, I mean, all we can hope for is we're thinking about thinking about thinking about. Yeah. So I, I, we're prepared but for thinking him about, to thinking be. But thinking about thinking about cutting, or thinking about think about being done. Being done. Yeah. Okay. I yeah. mean, our view is they're done. Yeah. He's not. Language is free, right? He can say whatever he wants in the presser, mm -hmm. and that's what he's going to do. He's going to be just as as hawkish as he's been, and scare the heck out of everyone in the market. And that's just we have to live with that. So our expectation is they're done, but they won't tell you they're done until well after the fact. And that's why we're talking to clients about. T-bill and chill for now, but get ready to turn the dial. And there's not going to be a green light. He's never going to say, hey, everybody, we're done. He's going to hint and hint and hint, and you've got to read through the lines. But if you're a long-term investor, that's less important. It's more important to know that we're almost at the end. Whether we're right and he's done, or somebody else is right and they've got one more, this we're really close to being done. Yep, uh, that's kind of the call here. The question is, you know, how close? And so let's just focus on something a little bit more fundamental. We're smack in the middle of earnings season here. Any takeaways uh, that you guys are focusing on here? Or what, or what are you looking forward to hear from these management teams? Yeah, it's still early. Um, so, you know, our earnings scorecard isn't yet. Uh, I wish I was back here in a week right. because a busy week next week, not just the Fed meeting, but a number of really big names. I think the biggest uh, learning that's emerged from the early part of the earnings season is how much companies who give poor guidance are getting beaten up. The guys that are delivering solid results, they're even getting the beats, and the majority are beats. I mean, the beats are ahead mm -hmm. of what they've been over the last couple of quarters, so feel good about that. But boy, the misses are getting clobbered. And so the guidance, when the guidance is weak, either in printed or in the calls, yep. look out, it's I tough. I get the same feeling. I get, I get the feeling that if you uh, meet or beat uh, you're okay. It's no big deal. But if you miss, they're going to take you to the woodhouse. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's always been that way, but I think right now, just in your opening comments, like, yeah. what do you do with this market? I think of a poor guidance or, uh, uh, someone coming out and just saying, look, I think next year is going to be tough or even the first half of next year is going to be tough. It's you're right. You are getting taken out. We've back. seen some big beats. I mean, if I look at, uh, S and P index, EA Go yep. on the terminal. Um, 245 out of the 500 have reported on the S&P. Um, earnings surprise, 7.4%. Yeah. 
So big beats, and if I look down the list of uh, you know who's done it, uh, consumer discretionary is ripping. They're yes. up fifteen percent over expectations. And if you look at just growth over the same quarter last year, it's also huge. You know, six point. Uh, 5.8%, 5.9% in terms of earnings growth. Um, and if you look at consumer discretionary, 54% in terms of earnings growth over the same quarter last year. If you look at communications, 35% over the same quarter last year. So they're doing well. Are we going to see these kind of earnings seasons continue into 2024? Are we going to see, you know, uh, 5, 6, 7% earnings growth? Well, first, I thought you were going to ask me, why isn't the market up on this incredible earnings well, I know season? why the, the market's not up. you got <laughs> yields that are off to the exactly. races, right? Yeah. Offering, as you say, bill, T-bill and chill. Yep. you got a lot of competition from yields. Plus, you've got a rising dollar. Plus, you've got rising oil costs. So, yeah. Yeah, no, tough. it makes sense. It makes sense yeah. that we're bouncing around. And I think you also have this specter of a recession out there. So look, there's two things that are going on. One is the sell side is talking about earnings, and they really haven't budged their numbers much. We think that it's frankly the buy side firms that aren't publishing, that aren't telling you what they're doing with their numbers, they've taken them down. So we would expect to see some slowdown in earnings over the next couple of quarters. By the way, macro perspective, don't think we're going into recession, think we get through, but earnings will slow from here, whether that's this quarter or next quarter or Q2, we'll see. But it's it's definitely earnings slowdown from here. By the way, is this normal being in you know, a red hot economy looking back, but everybody kind of biting their fingernails and worrying about a recession around the corner. Is that normal? Yeah, it's, it's, there's so many people out there that don't even know what a 5% 10 year looks like, <laughs> right? That people have said, oh, wait, can the 10 year really go? I mean, I, there's some yeah. people that think that's almost like an artificial ceiling. That's as high as it can go. Um, yes, this is normal. Even if you go back to the early 2000s when the economy was steaming, not knowing the GFC was on right around the corner, but there was concern around, have we overcooked this thing? I look so, at, uh, I go on challengertalk.com. You know, it's a forum for Dodge buyers. Yeah, and, I'm, I'm not on them. And, not and, with and, you know, there will be a, a headline, um, you know, challenger sales are down. And somebody will be like, yeah, because these, this economy's in the crapper, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, really? Yeah. 5% GDP growth, 3.5% unemployment. This feels like a bad economy to you? Right. It does. Yeah. And look at the participation rate is creeping up. And we're like you said, wage growth has been consistent. Consumers are spending. I think what, what that comment re is a reaction to is the savings rate coming down. So coming out of COVID, all that money pumped into the system. Everyone had bloated balance sheets up and down the wealth spectrum. Now it's really the upper end of the wealth spectrum that has the dollars and the lower end is spent through. And that's why you're starting to see credit card numbers pop up. Um, so there, there really is a tale of two cities going on. At the upper end, everyone is comfortable T-bill and chill. At the lower end, we've seen a reduction in savings and that's starting to, you can, you can feel it. When you guys do dip your toe back into the water, what are some of the sectors that you guys might be? I think there's two out? ways to dip toe. One is into equities. The other, well, maybe there's three. Equities, fixed income. I think there you're going to be traditional. I think if, if we get a slowdown in earnings, if rates stay high, you want to be with quality. You want to be with good balance sheets. You want to be with reliable cash flow. But I also think there's an incredible opportunity that exists in the private markets one, because public plans, big LPs are way over their skis with illiquidity and they're yep. selling like crazy. And two, they've got no money to put into those markets for the next two, maybe three years. And so the valuations are coming down there. And I think this is in primaries, it's in secondaries, it's in private equity, it's in venture capital, it's in real estate. It's everywhere in the private because markets. Because you used to be at Bernstein running the alternative asset strategies. I was. So talk to us, give us your two cents on private credit. Matt and I have just been fascinated over the we're about summer. to quit yeah we're here. about to quit and just, and we're going to go, go open yeah. up a private credit <laughs> yes <laughs> yes uh, private credit has been incredible over this cycle people thought in covid oh no this is this is the end because a lot of the public bdcs were under pressure but you know, private credit lived through that made money in that market did very well in 21 made money last year in 22 and i've seen private credit numbers so far this year that have double digits on them on a year-to-date basis so look they've weathered the storm it's all about underwriting all about underwriting. If you're conservative, you're going to be fine. If you took crazy risk a couple of years ago because you needed to win that deal, you're going to be in trouble. Yep. Isn't there? It's definitely no, a double-edged sword. Nobody's, nobody's watching these guys. I wouldn't say nobody's watching those guys. I mean, we, we have a private credit business that um, 
I, we spend a lot of time uh, really with our hands deep in it. I think others do as well. Yes, is the regulatory oversight different in the public markets? This isn't private. That's a risk. That's definitely a risk. Yeah. But if you're with somebody that's a track record of success in and out of tough markets, I, I, I'm, I'm going to say you're going to be fine. But Paul, what, what are you doing? Are you calling for regulation before we start our shop? <laughs> before we start our no. shop? Yeah. I'm just waiting for some big deal or a couple of deals to blow up. And then we're going to well, be like, you by the way, write a you letter could, to Elizabeth Warren? What yes, are you doing oh, no, here? No, please don't. Yeah. You could have a, a couple of blowups, but that actually creates opportunity because there's so much money on the sidelines waiting yep, to yep, rescue yep. that. That's the thing that I think people miss. If we have a blip in private credit, it's going to be like a 30-second blip because there's so much money waiting to just get in there and get after it. All right, Alex. Uh, good job. I just promoted you during the course of this discussion from co-head of investment strategies to chief investment officer of Bernstein Private Wealth Management. So congratulations <laughs> thank you, on thank that. You. We appreciate that. Uh, you're based in LA. Anytime you're in New York, you're welcome to come back in. Love awesome. hearing your market call here. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Welcome to our Bloomberg TV and radio audiences worldwide. Shares of Intel popping today as the chipmaker predicted a return to sales growth in the fourth quarter, fueled by a rebound in the personal computer market, but also a more competitive product lineup. Joining us now is Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger. And look, Pat, there was quite a long list of, of things that investors cheered, right? This is the third quarter where the markets basically said, Pat, we believe you on the turnaround story. Um, but, but on your to-do list, where do you think you are and what do you think you have left to do on that turnaround story? Yeah, thanks, Ed. And, you know, overall, hey, it was a great, uh, as we say, just a clean beat and raise on all the financial metrics. But even more important was the operational performance. And, uh, you know, as we said, hey, getting back to process leadership. And we, you know, delivered key milestones. And we still have at least another year or two to go on getting that done. But major milestones starting to deliver foundry customers. You know, I promised one at the start of the year. And now we have three on our most advanced process technology, major packaging wins and of course the product execution you know clean launch of the ai pc generation but also the server business getting back to profitability uh, ahead of schedule and uh, a little bit better performance there and delivering the ai everywhere uh, message with our accelerators our server product line so a really excellent quarter and i'm just so grateful for the intel team it's been a journey and we are clearly coming back uh, Pat, you've talked to investors and indeed to Caroline and I about these new customers for the foundry business. When do we get names? When are you going to announce who these customers are? Well, you know, two things there, Ed. One is it's not generally the practice of the foundry industry for the foundry to be declaring their customer uh, names. So one, it's not practice. And also many of the customers consider it confidential and part of their competitive advantage and how and what technologies they choose. So I can't promise names, but we're going to characterize them as best we can. And you know, as we said, these are high performance and AI customers. And we've really seen the surge of interest in using the Intel technologies and foundry for different AI offerings in the marketplace. And that's both a wafer, but also a packaging. And this idea of advanced packaging, I mean, in addition to the three on the wafer side, we had two advanced packaging customers in AI, and that revenue materializes more rapidly and six more in the pipeline. So overall, a really substantial uh, quarter. And the AI space in particular has been the customers that have seen the most enthusiasm. Let's talk about the AI space because the running of AI models is where you see your future. It's not all just about the foundation models. It's actually the running of them, not just the building. But can you just relieve some of the anxiety coming from investors about a lack of clarity over data center future? And indeed, what is it that they need to hear from you? What more can you articulate that really makes it clear to them that you're going to be front and center in the AI race? Yeah, thanks, Carolyn. And, you know, really, you know, first, let's characterize what we're talking about. This idea of creating, you know, these frontier or foundation models, as is described, versus using, right, and the training and the inferencing against those models. And I sort of compare it to like weather models. Not that many people generate weather models, but a lot of people use them. And that's how we think about this next phase of AI. 
how do we make this inferencing or the use of the models broadly available? And that's going to be, you know, in the client, right? We talked about the AIPC. It's going to be at the edge, right, in retail and manufacturing and uh, supply chains. But it's also going to be in on-premise data centers. And as we've said, instead of taking my data to the cloud, I want to bring the AI to my data center where the data is already. And finally, work in the cloud. And you know, for the data center proper, as your question talks about, hey, you know, we knew we were going to lose some market share here, right? Those losses happened last year, and they're sort of playing out in the marketplace. But our roadmap is strong, and we over-executed uh, in the quarter on our next gen, our Gen 4 product, but did a bit better than we thought, and a lot of AI use cases in this area of inferencing. The next generation, Gen 5, we're already ramping that in production, and that's going to get announced in December. But next year's products, we're already seeing great health, and we're ahead of schedule on those, and those really improve our competitiveness. And the 25 products will go into fab in uh, the first quarter of next year. So our whole roadmap and execution has really improved, and we start to see ourselves regaining market share in 24 in that area. And I mm. think that will be sort of the final piece of the turnaround story when you know the market sees, okay, data center is back strong, they're winning in the AI space. You know that'll be the end of the turnaround story, and people say, okay, they did it. Well, going back to that building, that training of data. Can you talk to a little about stability AI? Of course, you've got a deal to build that AI supercomputer. Was that? them really going to you for ultimately what Gaudi can provide over what NVIDIA would? Or is it that you wanted to really be sort of offering them some carrots in the situation to be able to be helping with the training of the models? Yeah, great question. And, you know, now with Gaudi, we're now delivering performance and benchmarks that are as good as the best in the industry. So we've gotten our performance there. You know, there was also some of this work that you know, the models were created and much of the software industry was working, you know, on the NVIDIA platform. So we had to do some of the software work to get those running on the Gaudi platform. And they're looking for more cost-effective choices and ones that are supply chain available in the industry. And as we're ramping our Gaudi product line, we're getting that software work done. You know, they're priced more competitively. Customers are saying, wow, I can do that work and do it at a much lower power performance envelope than the alternatives, you know, and uh, have a much more cost-effective model training and inferencing at scale, okay, you know, we're seeing a real surge of interest. And as I said, we doubled our uh, pipeline of customers this quarter, you know, and we, you know, like others in the industry, are now supply chain constrained, and we're racing to catch up to that demand on our Gaudi product line. For our Bloomberg radio and television audience worldwide, we're speaking to the CEO of Intel, Pat Gelsinger. Pat, the story of this week has been chip companies entering the PC processor market on ARM architecture. How do you hold off those newcomers? You know, attention, for example, on Apple this coming Monday, and they have done well in that domain. Yeah, and I think of the AI, you know, PC as an exciting category. And this is one that we announced, uh, and you know, we've been the first company on that. And we're now ramping our first generation AI PC products called the Core Ultra. So others are talking about what they might do in a year or two years. We're ramping products in the marketplace you know, today. We announced over 100 ISVs in our AI acceleration program, so they're coming on board. And before others uh, have their products even shipping in the marketplace, we'll be launching our next generation, our Lunar Lake product, you know, which which we've already demonstrated for next year. And Panther Lake, our 25 product, you know, we're sending that into fab on our leadership Intel 18A process technology in Q1. So I feel like we have a very strong roadmap. And hey, the idea of an ARM-based uh, PC, you know, they've always been sort of niche and low end with the exception of Apple and there it's not ARM. It's Apple and their ecosystem. So for the broader Windows R market, you know, it's always been pretty uh, low end, right, and insignificant in the bigger context. And as long as we deliver our roadmap, I feel very confident that as others surge into the AI PC space, you know, this is a lift to the overall PC market and will be you know, uniquely positioned to benefit from that. Pat, going back just a second to stability in the AI supercomputer, that's kind of in the assembled component domain. But are you saying or are you able to confirm that's a paid relationship where stability oh, yes. pays you for use of Gaudi? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, this is a, this is a major customer, and uh, we'll be building that uh, with them, of course, working closely with them. But this is a paid customer relationship. You know, we also see quite another uh, set uh, around our OEMs. We announced the major partnership with Dell, right, for uh, not only Xeons, but also Gaudis as they come on-premise and their cloud offerings. You know, we've seen a big upsurge in uh, Gaudi interest in the Intel developer cloud. We had a 5x increase in the developers on our developer cloud, much of that on the uh, Gaudi platform. And as I said, we uh, saw, you know, well over a billion dollars uh, last quarter. We've approximately doubled that uh, this quarter of Gaudi demand uh, worldwide. And those are largely paid customer uh, engagements. So yes. overall, we're just seeing a surge of interest with Stability AI, Dell, and many others. Pat, we every earnings look to your forecast for the PC market. And you're slightly more positive than consensus in terms of literally how many PCs you think will ship around the world this year. I guess part of that is baked into your sales forecast for the current period as well. What gives you that confidence? And why is it that consumers will return to buying PCs? Yeah, and there's probably three different factors there. You know, one is I can say, hey, we gave this 270 million-ish PCs uh, being uh, sold through this year. And we said that earlier in the year. Many thought that we were too optimistic. Hey, we look at it today and we're almost you know, spot on with our accuracy on that uh, forecast. Second, we've seen the industry, you know, not just Intel, but the industry overall inventory levels are now healthy. You know, when we look at our sell-in rate versus sell-out rate, you know, the product is selling through. I'd also say, hey, we're off to a good start in Q4. We're a couple of weeks into the quarter. And as I said on the earnings call, hmm, really good start to Q4 as well. And, you know, seasonality is a bit above in Q4 historical levels. We also have things like Windows 10 end of service coming from Microsoft. You know, Microsoft's about to uh, release their co-pilot uh, products. But I'd say the sizzle in the marketplaces around this AI PC, broad new use cases for the PC. And I've compared it to the Centrino moment of 20 years ago when Centrino really ushered Wi-Fi at scale into the industry. And we think that's exactly what's going to happen with the AI PC. It will be a driver of new applications and use cases for the PC and bringing a bit more excitement, a bit acceleration, more users coming into the marketplace because it's going to give significant new capabilities to PC users. Is that what gives you your gross margin level of 60% again? Is that where the confidence comes from? Well, to get our overall gross margins up above 60%, I need the whole business to improve, uh, Carolyn. Obviously, we're you know, making good progress in the PC. You know, I also need to improve my factory network. And uh, as we get back to leadership, we finish this super aggressive five nodes in four years. You know, I'm churning through capital very rapidly to get back to leadership. That's a big factor. Getting the data center business healthy, going back to one of your earlier questions, another you know, factor in getting back to our margins structures. You know, one of the other things we did this quarter was also have great operational success on our cost saving initiatives. And we said, you know, we would result in three billion savings. You know, we've also cleaned up the company. I've exited 10 businesses since I've been here. And uh, now we think we're finished with that phase and we just get focused on growing the company again to the future. So part of its growth, part of it's this focus areas across the businesses and part of it's just increased operational discipline. But this quarter's results, we're well on our way to accomplishing that. And you talk of operations there, and we didn't get time to talk about it, but we know that you do indeed have operations in Israel, and we think of your own employees and and your infrastructure there at this time, Pat. So thank you very much for spending some time with us and walking us through your numbers. Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger there. You're listening to The Tape. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Matt Miller, Paul Sweeney, live here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio streaming live on YouTube as well. Uh, I'm going to bring our next guest, Matt, because we got some important stuff to talk about. Barry Ritholtz, host of Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. He's also the chief executive officer, uh, uh, chief investment officer and founder of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Plus, plus, he's a Jeep driver, which is why I thought uh, we should bring him on, because we're going to talk about what I'm driving this week. What are you driving this week? A Jeep <laughs> Wrangler Rubicon 392. 
which is... Does that mean anything to you, Barry? Yeah, I, I actually have an old 2013 uh, Rubicon, which, you know, when the apocalypse comes, that's the car <laughs> I'll take. Because as amusing as, as some of the go-fast cars that, that Matt and I both like, the fun thing about the Jeep is it's kind of unstoppable. I mean, it's just really, really fun. It's so much fun to drive. And actually, I hadn't driven the Jeep for years and years when I got into the uh, uh, driver's seat of this beast. Um, and, and it is a you, beast. Those on YouTube are seeing it, it right now. It is awesome looking. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's, I mean, uh, I love the red one that they gave me in the, the press car, but it has a 6.4 liter V8. The same engine that's in my Challenger. Um, so just mountains of torque and horsepower and when i got on the freeway i just put the pedal down and i forgot that jeep steering like you have to turn the steering wheel a few revolutions before the tires know okay. that the car wants to change direction and it's not like a normal car so it was a little scary at first but after a day of getting used to it i was like man this is so much fun to drive it's a Barry, it's a different experience than driving a regular car, just in the way you sit, the way it operates, the way it rolls. Like, it's it's different. Plus, it's got a drag coefficient of, I think, 100. It's yeah, a, like what does a that mean? Flat it's a brick. Of, it's a brick. <laughs> right, it's, it's literally that. So you need 400 horsepowers. And the car that I'm driving now could not be further opposite of the design. I, right. I have the Nismo Z. The what? Which is a, a, a little, it's the new version of the Z, their track, Nissan Z, their track version of it with, um, first of all, it's very slippery. It's just a teardrop that slips through the air. And, and that is the polar opposite when it comes to steering. Very little input needed, very precise steering. You used to have to spend multiple six figures to get steering this good. It's shocking uh, how much fun this car is for how yeah, relatively Yeah, I should, I should clarify. So Barry's also test driving a car this week. And you actually have the pre-production version of the Z. Right. I drove the Z. We're showing pictures of the one I drove, um, which I absolutely fell in love with. Although I will say that part of the affair that I had with this little Nissan Z was the manual transmission. Oh, yeah. Which was so much fun. I mean, I thought it was as good, as easily as good as a, as a 911. And by the way, shout out to the courtyard of the Bloomberg Global Headquarters That's in where New York City. Our it cars. makes a great spot to showcase a car. But, but Barry, so you're driving the, the souped-up version. It's really a track right. car, um, the, the Nismo <clears throat> version. Um, what do you think of it? Do you like it? So about 10 years ago, I had the original Nissan 370Z, and that was kind of a GT. It was a stick shift, um, beautiful car, a little sexier than this version, but it was a GT. It's kind of big, kind of heavy, and about 330 horsepower. This car um, looks much better in person than it does in the photos. It's very purpose-built. It's very focused. Uh, as much as I prefer a stick shift, this 420 horsepower version with the nine-speed uh, dual-clutch uh, transmission, every time you step on the gas, it's like you poked a uh, hive of angry hornets, <laughs> and it it's just a lot of fun. And for for honestly, a fair for normally this sort of performance, sixty thousand dollars, you're looking at used cars. A new version of this, I, I actually took the car over to my local detail wrap shop that does, you know, does car washes and wraps and things like Ceramic that. Ceramic coating, the PPF. The kids went nuts. They lost their mind. First of all, this is like there are none in the country. Yeah, it's pre-production. I'm, I'm being, I'm, I've been very careful because I don't want to damage the only Nismo Z in the United States. But second... Um, you get up to extra legal speeds quite rapidly, and so and the sound you know, I, eggs you on. I, so I got I drove that for a couple of days before Barry got in it, and I the one thing is the sound makes you want to go faster, no matter how fast <laughs> you're going. I love the sound of the engine. Yeah, yeah, it's angry, and it's it it urges you to go, and it is you know when you see the pictures, it kind of looks a little plain, and then you see it in person. And it's like, oh, this is really a very handsome, 
car. I, I found it very planted and very um, not a punishing ride. Typically, a track car, you know, you feel the lines uh, on the highway. This, I, I drove home in bumper-to-bumper traffic from New York City uh, for about an hour and a half, and it was not uncomfortable. You put it in standard mode, in tra- regular mode, and it's sort of sedate. And then you put it into Sport or Sport Plus, and, you know, you awaken the demons within. It, it's a lot of car, and it's a lot of car for the money. Yeah, so that, uh, so the Nissan Z, I think we can agree, is... Um, a great bargain. And I think it's a Porsche Cayman competitor easy, even though the engine's in the front, not in the middle. The, they, the, Jeep, by the way, they describe it more it, as a Mustang or a, or no a Camaro way. Challenger. No. Um, you it's know, a race car. It's not a muscle car, you know? Yeah, and those, the, the, those I know, have <laughs> evolved into race cars, but they're still muscle. Uh, Camaro certainly still a muscle car. They're very much so. But I, I uh, want to point out, though, Barry, that the Jeep, on the other hand, it is not a bargain in terms of the price. So the Jeep Wrangler Rubicon 392, uh, $93,000 to start. That's before a delivery fee. That's not a typical Jeep buyer, kind of, is it? It's so expensive. And what I wanted to ask you about, Barry, what do you think about this inflation? Which, by the way, it's not going to turn around. But Jeep, it to me, is even, it's another level on the kind of new car price inflation that we've seen. They're trying to do something, I feel like, from uh, Stellantis headquarters. They're trying to make Jeep into a luxury brand. So, you know, after the the pandemic, when you went out and looked at um, various you know, sports cars, Ferraris, Porsches, things like that, what you, what you ended up having is used cars were going for the same or more than new cars. Very much a pandemic-related event. But go back to the 10, 15 years before the pandemic, you look at a brand-new 2014 Jeep Rubicon, you know, gussied up about 40 grand. You look at a one-year-old Jeep Rubicon, about 40 grand. So Jeeps are notorious for holding their value. And this isn't, you know, you you want a, 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 a GT3 911, they only make so many of them. They're cranking out a lot of Jeeps. And despite that, even before the pandemic, they weren't easy to get. There were no discounts to be found. There are no bargains in the used car lots of Jeeps. So we'll see if the new Bronco and some of the other competitors are going to take a little little bit of market share away from them. And maybe the prices will shift. But that was always shocking. My, yep. my 2013 Rubicon, um, I comfortable buying a salvage title i don't recommend people buy a salvage title but it was a flood car i just replaced all the electronic harnesses and for half of what (laughs) i would normally pay for a used jeep uh, i got a ten thousand mile jeep i mean it was orange or it's still orange (laughs) i just had to get used to that color right but that's the thing about jeeps you know it's a cult and people love them they love it all right barry awesome stuff barry ritholtz host of masters in business on bloomberg radio uh what in the world is matt miller driving he drives pretty much anything he wants folks let's be honest thanks for listening to the bloomberg markets podcast you can subscribe and listen to interviews at apple podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer i'm matt miller i'm on twitter at matt miller 1973 And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Hurd the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.